Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'll be speaking with Caton Mystery and Hannah German, the editors of a new volume called Whistleblowing Nation, the history of national security disclosures and the cult of state secrecy. The book explores the practice of and policing of whistleblowing. And as war against whistleblowers has continued unabated across many different presidential administrations since the 1970s, it's a really important contribution. And in our own age of Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks and so on, um, it is an extremely timely one, too. Caton is a senior lecturer at the University of East Anglia, and Hannah German is a clinical associate professor at NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study. Thank you so much for being on the show, Caton and Hannah. Thanks so much for having us, Dexter. So our conversation is going to explore something that a lot of people have familiarity with. Um, uh, you know, it's in the news. Um, they have probably watched The Post and, uh, and other um, uh, films about whistleblowing. Um, they've heard of Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers, and so on. But at least for me, the history of whistleblowing is not something that I put much thought into. Uh, and so uh, I imagine it's the same for others as well. And so we'll be trying to put that history together for our listeners. Um, and I should also mention for our listeners um, that uh, Kate and Hannah um, have a, a little gift for you. Um, there will be a discount code in the blog post um, up on the New Books Network um, website where uh, you or through which you can um, uh, get 30% off um, the volume if you were to buy it. Um, and so just to begin, um, can you each share how you ended up um, you know, interested in the topic of the history of whistleblowing? Yeah, so I was finishing up um, an, an, an earlier book that looked at sort of the international Cold War. Um, and I was finishing up that project, which was actually the last time uh, I remember appearing on the New Book Network. So it's very nice mm-hmm. to be here uh, to to talk about this one. Uh, and I was starting another project on sort of public discussions about intelligence. And through that, I came across a number of cases on the 1970s, which is sort of the the historic high point for whistleblowing. You mentioned Daniel Ellsberg, for example, but there were a number of other um, cases during that time. So um, I had, I was doing a, uh, I was on a fellowship at NYU where I was researching some of these cases, and that's where Hannah and I first connected. This was a period when you have disclosures by the likes of Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden making the headlines. And we were following these stories like everybody else. We were curious as to the historical roots of this phenomenon, which seemed to have exploded. Uh, so we sort of set about trying to ask that historical question of, well, wh- what are the origins of this? How has it evolved? How have we got to this point where you have these cases where uh, insiders are revealing information around national security, and the state is retaliating uh, against them. Mm-hmm. And Hannah, how about yourself? Right. So similar to Kayton, the my interest in this project is also rooted in my earlier work. Um, my first book was on diplomats who dissented from sort of central tenets of Cold War foreign policy, 
and um, Kitten and I, as he said, connected a few years after that. Um, and I was very interested in writing the first book. There was a central question about whether you stay in and keep your descent on the inside or whether you go public. Um, and the, the last chapter of that book was on the descent channel, which was a channel that was um, in the State Department that was essentially there to keep dissent inside. Um, but what I found was most interesting was that by the Iraq War, um, people were using it um, to go public with their dissent against the U.S. invasion there. Um, so I was already thinking about these things, but it was really um, in um, connecting with Kitten that we decided to focus you know, exclusively on this tricky, important, yet very tricky idea and history of whistleblowing. Um, and that's where um, things really got interesting because we had to kind of ask ourselves, um, how do we historicize a phenomenon that really has not been uh, historicized um, to this point? There's a lot of social science literature. Um, and as Kate mentioned, it's kind of everywhere in the popular consciousness. Um, but to do to, to, to trace the historical trajectory of whistleblowing is what we set about to do. <laughs> so I should also add that we, another key factor in this was that we were fortunate enough to secure some funding. This is from the um, British Arts and Humanities Research Council, which allowed, provided us with a grant, which allowed Hannah and myself to work together in a systematic way, but also bring together a, a wider team uh, of scholars, many of whom contributed to to the volume, to explore this history, because there hasn't really been a history of national security disclosures, and in many ways it was a task that perhaps was too was too much for even just two scholars to do to pull off. So we were really fortunate to to assemble a fantastic group of uh, academics. Uh, from very different backgrounds, different disciplinary interests, to sort of write a interdisciplinary, comprehensive history of this phenomenon from the early 20th century up to the very present. Yeah, I mean, j- just to um, give a quick mention of the contributors, um, I was really impressed by the the the, the, the people that um, you assembled. I mean, Sam Lebovic is actually someone that's been on my podcast before. Um, and so I was super excited to see his chapter. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite uh, a cast of characters that uh, you got to participate in a workshop at some point. Um, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. We, so we initially got the core group together at a workshop at NYU where we workshop papers uh, and sort of considered not just our individual contributions, but also the, 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 the bigger picture as well. Because none of us were or were scholars of whistleblowing, right? That, that, that's not really a, a field or a subfield. Um, so our approach was very much to explore this as a collective, to sort of think about, well, what is it that we are dealing with here? What are the frameworks? Because it's not just whistleblowing per se, but it speaks to broader questions, I think. Uh, and this is what makes the project so interesting, broader questions around secrecy around national security, around uh, First Amendment speech rights, um, around democracy and civil liberties. Uh, and because we were able to approach it as a more, 
adopt a more holistic approach with a fantastic group of scholars. We were very fortunate to work with them. We felt that it could be a project that lends itself very well to that kind of collective endeavor. Mm-hmm. And, and so actually, maybe a good place to start our conversation um, would be t- a definitional uh, question. So um, Hannah, can, can you explain like, what whistleblowing even is? Yes, that is the million dollar question. Um, While whistleblowing has become a very familiar term, it remains a very contested concept. Um, And one of the things that we were trying to do was to both analyze and somewhat to transcend the limits of the way we talk about whistleblowing. So one of the things that we were struck by when we first uh, began the project was the polarizing nature of the debate around whistleblowing. Uh, we're essentially stuck in a binary in which whistleblowers are either heroes or traitors, um, and we're falsely presented with the choice that whistleblowers will either give us liberty and kind of be the salvation to democracy's democracy's ills, um, or that they represent an existential threat to national security. Um, And it's also often uh, played out as a partisan issue Although historically, the politics are very messy around whistleblowing. It it doesn't map out neatly onto left-right politics. Um, So whistleblowing as a term, it comes about, it is popularized in the 1970s by Ralph Nader um, as a kind of attempt to uh, have individuals think about their commitment to the public over the organization, um, specifically rooted in questions around the corporation. Um, But it was not initially seen as being applied to the national security state. So a whistleblower is somebody who has uh, an element of conscience and is supposed to represent something called the public interest, which is also a very messy term. But of course, the devil is in the details who is considered a whistleblower and who isn't. There's a long contest over that kind of label. Um, And when you are speaking about national security whistleblowing, you have the politics of national security on top of that. And so rather than someone being labeled a whistleblower, the state will say this is an unauthorized disclosure and label that person a traitor. Um, So suffice it to say, there is no easy definition of whistleblowing. It needs to be historicized and also the contest over who gets to be called a whistleblower, particularly in the national security establishment, needs to be historicized. Mm -hmm. So if I could jump in there, I think... As Hannah said, the contested nature of the term is is an issue which will never really be resolved. So our approach was to, rather than offer a very sort of uh, normative reading of what a whistleblower definitely is or isn't, try to to chart the characteristics. And when you go back over this longer history, the characteristics are quite uh, clear. So you can sort of break it down into five steps. And this is how we characterize the phenomenon of national security whistleblowing and that definitional question. The first is that this will be an insider of the state with privileged information who makes a public disclosure that in some ways challenges the status quo 
often it's around classified information, but it, that's not always the case. The second characteristic is that the individual's identity authenticates that information. So this is where you could maybe draw a line between whistleblowing and leaking, which are terms are often conflated. The third step is this public discussion uh, about the whistleblower being either a hero or villain. And as Hannah said, this is where you get into that sort of murky, t- this territory where you can't escape this binary, right? You talk people, the discussion often revolves around the personal motives or the ideologies of a whistleblower rather than the substance of the disclosure itself. The fourth step is that the state moves to persecute them in some sh- shape or form, often through, uh, through legal means, but sometimes um, using other methods. And then you have the fifth point, where you have the way questions over the character of the whistleblower uh, displaces the substance of the disclosure. So rather than talking about the Pentagon Papers, for example, the discussion is all around Daniel Ellsberg and who he is, what his motives are. Uh, and again, this, this pattern has sort of repeated almost in every single case that we've came across in our, our project, stretching back over the past century, very much embedded in American political culture. Yeah, and, and so, Kate, you actually just mentioned something that's um, uh, sort of like a parallel term, um, and that's leaking. Um, and so the two of you write in your um, opening chapter um, that kind of just sketches the history of whistleblowing, um, that um, in the post-9-11 era, um, uh, like, there have been several leakers, um, sort of like, um, uh, you know, like within the state, uh, like leaking privileged information, um, who have not gotten to trouble, but any whistleblower um, uh, has actually been prosecuted. Um, can can one of you sort of help us navigate um, the differences between leaking and whistleblowing? Sure. There, there are a lot of overlaps between whistleblowing and leaking, and those terms are often used interchangeably, or more specifically, when someone discloses information in the public interest as an act of whistleblowing, they are pejoratively labeled as leakers instead. But we thought it was important to try to distinguish the two phenomenon. And part of that is understanding the difference between the status of leakers and whistleblowers. So generally speaking, leakers are high-level political officials. And they, um, as opposed to whistleblowers, who, yes, can come from all different strata of the national security establishment, but tend to come more from the mid-level Um, Another difference would be the fact that leaking is almost always anonymous. You don't know the individual's identity, as opposed to whistleblowing, which tends to be attached to an individual's identity. And that is what, as Caitlin mentioned, authenticates the disclosure. And then very importantly, as you said, leakers are almost never punished. It's part of a high-level decision to make information public for a variety of reasons, political, whether to float a policy um, or to undercut an opponent. Um, 
but they almost never face the kind of retaliation that whistleblowers have faced, especially since the 1970s, um, with an, a range of punishments that go from being demoted to being fired to being threatened with prosecution and actually being prosecuted. Um, so that is really the key distinction is the kind of dangers that whistleblowers face that generally speaking, leakers do not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I read this book as a, sort of like a history of the management of um, information. Um, and I, I was um, just really fascinated by all these different tools that the state developed to kind of um, uh, prevent um, uh, information from leaking out, from seeping out. Um, uh, um, and, um, and Kate, in your chapter, looks at this um, uh, really closely. But I, I, would, I would actually like to talk before we get there about the um, sort of like the earlier period. Um, so sort of the, uh, I mean, you, you, in your opening chapter, the two of you talk about the Defense Secrets Act of 1911, the Sedition Act, the Espionage Act. Um, but yeah, the, the Espionage Act in particular is a really fascinating one. And Sam Lebovic gets at this in, uh, in his history of the act in um, its uh, first four decades. Um, it, it turns out that the Espionage Act is actually a really ineffective um, uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, just a really ineffective way for the state to police whistleblowing. Yeah, um, sure. Can so you talk a little bit about, can one of you talk a little bit about this? A um, sort of the, curious um, uh, piece of the, legislation. The, from the state's perspective, the problems with uh, the Espionage put Act? together during the World War One era, and it was created as a a law to help police dissent and the dissemination of information during wartime. Uh, So most historians will know it from that period uh, with cases like Eugene Debs. But soon it starts to evolve into much more of a a tool that is around classification and the policing of classified information. So you mentioned Sam has a wonderful chapter on this where he where he charts this, um, but it's I guess the key takeaway is that the, the, the Espionage Act was not necessarily created to protect secrets as such. It was sort of post facto tagged on to the the subsequent classification system, which emerges in the middle of the twentieth century. What this all means is that. The classification regime, the nature of secrecy, and how the state is able to protect them is very much an ad hoc, improvised sort of system that has been made up. So the Espionage Act comes before the notion of an official secret as such. Right? The classif- modern classification system in the United States emerges in the 1950s. It's through executive orders. Um, each presidency will sort of tinker with it, but the essential framework remains that of um, that was created in the 1950s. And again, these are executive orders. They're not passed by Congress. They are not laws as such. So that's something which is quite unique to the United States uh, and distinguishes it from other countries. For example, the UK, many other countries will have an official Secrets Act, which 
is, is, is the way that state secrets are protected. But the United States doesn't have an official secrets act. It cannot because of the Constitution, particularly First Amendment speech rights. So the Espionage Act has kind of been a imperfect way for the US government to essentially police the classification of information, the class of classified information. It kind of works as a de facto official secrets act, but it was never created as such. It was primarily a World War I tool. Um, but it is a very imperfect one, uh, and yet it's the best one that this, that, 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 the, that successive American administrations um, have found for targeting and prosecuting whistleblowers. There have been attempts to develop other tools with some success, uh, some less so, but they keep going back to the Espionage Act, which is why the very first cases against um, sort of whistleblowing in the 1930s, there was an attempt to charge people with, the, with individuals the Espionage Act, um, not always particularly successfully, the big cases of the 60s and the 70s, again, and then the modern wave, like the likes of your Snowdens or your uh, um, Mannings, uh, Reality Winner more recently, they've all been prosecuted under the, under the Espionage Act because that has continued to evolve. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the center of your book, um, it, it, it turns out to be Daniel Ellsberg and um, the Pentagon Papers. Um, it's like a, a, an episode that a lot of the chapters deal with, even if not um, uh, exclusively. Um, and, uh, and its relationship to the Espionage Act is really interesting because that's, that's what the state uses um, against Ellsberg. Um, but it never like the, the case is dismissed before um, it's decided, um, uh, um, and and a lot of that had to do with um, Nixon's own sort of covert tactics to stop whistleblowing. Um, and so, Hannah, can you actually just give like a um, a really quick summary of what happened, and then also how it relates to the Espionage Act and what's left unresolved? Sure. Right. So as you said, a lot of the book, um, even if it doesn't focus exclusively on Daniel Ellsberg, um, is in conversation with Daniel Ellsberg, who, um, especially before the current era of whistleblowing, was the most famous whistleblower. Um, And one of the ironies is that Daniel Ellsberg, who revealed the Pentagon Papers, which for anybody who doesn't know, was an inside Um, history, critical history of the Vietnam War. And he disclosed that um, to the New York Times um, and several other papers that were publishing it as well. Um, He, as you mentioned, was charged with the Espionage Act. Um, But famously, that case ended in a mistrial because of the shenanigans of the Nixon administration, who had wiretapped phones and broken into Nixon's, uh, excuse me, broken into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. Um, And so the central issue of whether a whistleblower could be convicted on the basis of the Espionage Act was left unresolved. Um, and Caton's chapter in the book, which explores the 1970s whistleblowers in more depth, looks at the ways that the state in that period, at least, was not really interested in using the Espionage Act, in part because it failed with Daniel Ellsberg, even though 
the reasons it failed were unrelated. Um, And so in that period, the state is developing other ways of sanctioning whistleblowers, including pre-publication review, which is a process through which people who work for the national security state need to submit all of their writings for the rest of their lives that might go into the public sphere through an internal, um, essentially, censorship board. Um, And we have a great chapter by Richard Immerman that looks at the limits of that process, not always conspiratorial, just a lot of ineptitude and bureaucratic um, kind of flailings that um, give people like uh, Richard um, the uh, the kind of lifetime um, censorship uh, possibilities. Once you work in the national security state, um, everything that you write potentially for the rest of your life is subject to that review. Um, and then you also have things like non-disclosure agreements that you sign um, at every level of the national security state if you ever have access to classified information. Um, and so these are alternative measures that the state adopts to try to, as you mentioned earlier, kind of police information and make sure that it stays within the state. Um, of course, the Espionage Act doesn't go away. Um, and it's really in the Obama administration that you have the revitalization of efforts to police whistleblowers through the Espionage Act. Um, and um, this is where uh, people like Reality Winner, um, she was the first whistleblower to be convicted and jailed um, through the Espionage Act. So the irony is that it wasn't Nixon who succeeded, but Obama. Um, And so there is an important kind of lesson for historians who might think that this is a Republican or Democratic issue. It's really a bipartisan history of policing national security information um, and periodically returning to the Espionage Act as, yes, an imperfect tool, but one that is potentially capacious enough um, to police whistleblowers and increasingly threaten the press um, and other uh, individuals and organizations that are associated with whistleblowing. So I think that's the kind of the the catch-22 of the Espionage Act is that it's very imperfect, but its imperfections make it potentially applicable to whistleblowers and to their allies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, we're going to get to Caton's chapter um, right now. Um, but before then, I just wanted to say, the politics of whistleblowing are really interesting because as the two of you point out, you know, classification, secrecy, um, uh, you know, like national security um, discourse and so on is so tied to the president. Um, And so um, it's historically um, bipartisan in the sense that, um, you know, we've had, or I was going to say we, I'm actually a Canadian, (laughs) but um, the United States has had, uh, you know, uh, Republican and Democratic administrations um, since the 1970s. And so um, um, because of that, the, the party doesn't matter so much as whoever is in power at that particular time. Um, but let's go to Caton's chapter because there's a lot in that. And I think, Caton, you, really, you do a really nice job of historicizing all these new tools of the state. Um, but before we get into that, I thought we could first talk about um, maybe the um, origins of this 
and what, what you call the anti-imperial generation of whistleblowers. Um, and you're, you're essentially tracking, um, you know, change over time. You're talking about this, yeah, like the rise of this like new generation um, uh, with like different motivations and so on. So can you actually just say like how this generation um, contr- contrasts with um, previous whistleblowers? Yeah, so when we started the project, we sought to identify moments of whistleblowing. Um, and there were some cases in the early part of the 20th century, the middle of the tw- middle of the century as well, sort of sporadic. Um, and the politics around them were very messy. Um, People were had very different motivations for wanting to reveal information. Um, you have people who are essentially Cold War hawks who disagree with policy, perhaps, and want to take a more aggressive stance. In the case of, or uh, in the case of uh, John Nickerson in the 1950s, who was the very first person to be charged under the Espionage Act, actually, who was basically uh, seeking to have the um, the army um, take over a key defense project, essentially. Uh, the, the Air Force take over a key defense project, sorry. Earlier instances, there were questions about um, individual motives, personal gain. So what what I found most interesting about the, the, the 1970s, or the long 1970s, because it starts really in the late 60s, is how you have, for the very first time, a group of individuals who are not formally connected, but are all starting to speak out against the American sort of mission in the world. In various locales, you've got people in Vietnam, you've got people in Latin America, you've got people who are specialists, um, even within Washington, about just the, 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 the mechanisms of state power. And they're all speaking out against uh, sort of overreach, um, but also the fundamental principles guiding American national security, the wars that are being waged. Um, And this is kind of what um, I I, I labeled an anti-imperial generation in sort of very broad terms. It's not just the argument that or they think that America is an empire, which is, of course, is a hot-button topic for academics and, uh, and, and, and numerous books. But it was more this idea of imperialism as a, as a way of life, uh, the tools of imperialism that they see uh, the U.S. has developed uh, and are prone to misuse. So this collection of individuals um, is quite remarkable because there hasn't really been a, uh, a generation uh, who have come out in that sort of way. Most of these people were all ardent cold warriors. You mentioned Ellsberg, people like Frank Snepp, uh, Philip Agee, John Stockwell. These were people who were on the forefront of often the, the covert policies of the CIA in the global south. Often CIA covert operatives, very much at the coalface um, of, 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 of American uh, policies against communists or alleged communists. And they speak out. Uh, some write books, uh, some speak with journalists, um, and they are refuting the, not just individual policies, but sort of the, the, the general mission of the United States in the world. Major reconsiderations, reflections. Um, so Jeremy Ron, uh, another contributor, has an excellent uh, chapter. Where he talks about this um, 
uh, a sort of transformation that these individuals sort of go through from believer to non-believer. And, and there's an interesting, uh, he's got an interesting argument about that. But I think essentially that's what makes the 70s so fascinating in terms of the volume and the scale of um, these whistleblowers who emerge. Can you tell us about maybe one of them? Just maybe give like the like a quick bio of uh, I don't know, like Philip Aggie or wh- whoever um, uh, you'd like to talk about. Yeah, so Philip Aggie is a CIA uh, covert operative who's working in Latin America. Um, he's involved in numerous covert operations. He grows up uh, in the nineteen fifties. That's when he's recruited uh, to the CIA very much a good all-American boy, um, classic cold warrior, who, as he states, goes off to fight the communist menace. Over time, um, he starts to reconsider his his views. Uh, Some of it is to do with the work he's engaged in. Some of it is uh, outside um, influences that uh, people he meets, the groups that he's circulating in. Uh, And he comes to a moment um, where he realizes that this is not the kind of job that he actually wants to be in. Interestingly, there's never a eureka moment. Often we sort of think that there is a light bulb moment where somebody sees the light. It's never like that. And that's been the case with every single case, every single episode that we uh, looked at, and even to the present day. There is never, it's a slow process. It's a gradual one where Individuals are rethinking, and Philip Agee would be that case, would be would fall into that, uh, absolutely. His is a little bit different in the sense that he leaves the CIA in the late 60s. Uh, and his uh, book that he becomes famous for doesn't come out until 1975. And it's a fascinating story, which I've written about in this chapter, but also in, in another article, where he is being pursued by the state because they know that he is he has plans to write this book and he is chased across borders he writes it in exile he's in europe he's in paris he's in london he's in mexico he's even in havana uh, and there's this transnational sort of struggle to for him to stay alive but also to write this book and for the state and for the us government who is trying to uh, capture him essentially or to prevent him from writing this book ag eventually Uh, publishes the book and then becomes a bete noir for the US national security state for the rest of his life, a very prominent uh, sort of outspoken critic of US foreign policy. But his his case is also interesting in in reflecting that, showing showing that there is no one kind of whistleblower. His trajectory after he he reveals information is very different from Frank Snepp or a Daniel Ellsberg, for example, each case is sort of unique, which is why, going back to sort of the discussion we had at the beginning, why it's also difficult to define whistleblowing so neatly, because no two cases are identical. Um, these people live very different lives, which returns the topic, I think, to the characteristics that we outlined uh, at the beginning and that our book sort of goes into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so just before we turn to Hannah's chapter, um, can you say a little bit about how um, the state is, um, you know, learning and innovating in terms of how it's policing whistleblowing? Right. So we talked about the Espionage Act, and Hannah mentioned the the case of 
Daniel Ellsberg, which is the most famous one, but it also, I think, um, masks some of the bigger issues around whistleblowing because there's so much attention on it. Daniel Ellsberg was under trial for violating the Espionage Act, but as we've said, his court is thrown out, his case is thrown out, it's a mistrial because of Nixon's plumbers and all the shenanigans um, surrounding that. So it's very likely that if the case hadn't been deemed a mistrial, Ellsberg would have gone to prison. So our even our understanding of, of Ellsberg, but also whistleblowing, would be quite diff- different now if that was the case. So this, the, the failure to prosecute Ellsberg and also a number of other individuals before that led the state to develop new tools. And this is what's kind of interesting about how much of this is tied to executive power. So you have a number of strands. The first one is around censorship and essentially prior restraint. You have the the beginnings of a pre-publication review process, uh, which comes into play in the 1970s. So essentially anybody who works in the national security sphere, initially starts in the CIA, but then it expands outwards, has to essentially gain approval for any public utterance. So in theory, it could be anything. It could be a podcast, it could be a lecture, um, but it was specifically designed to stop people uh, writing books at the time. And that's where essentially the agency, the executive agency, will check that there isn't any information going into the public sphere that shouldn't. In theory, it's a very sensible um, sort of mechanism, but in reality, there have been a lot of uh, accusations that it's it exists not so much to protect national security, but to prevent the state from um, being embarrassed by uh, information getting out where, where that makes the, the cast the state in a, in a negative light. And the other strand is the advent of non-disclosure agreements. Okay. So you, again, going back to the constitutional principles and not being able to have a, an official secrets act, uh, the US state faced a dilemma of how do you potentially prosecute somebody if they uh, do release information? And what they... What would emerge was taking something from that exists essentially in the private sector or a private life, a non-disclosure agreement, uh, and then tying that or uh, making national security officials sign that and then tying it to the Espionage Act. So anybody who breaks a non-disclosure agreement can be charged under the provisors of the Espionage Act. Okay. So in a roundabout way, it's part of this sort of jerry-rig system, which is sort of put together in a very improvised way. You have essentially executive contract. You have contracts with the executive government to not disclose information as if you were working in a, a law firm or a pharmaceutical company, right? So not to reveal insider secrets of that industry. But how can the government then uh, police that? The answer comes with the Espionage Act. Okay, so that's what makes that's what, what sends a, um, a Chelsea Manning to jail. It's what would send Edward Snowden to jail if he was to 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 return to the United States. And then the third and final sort of aspect is, and this is the one law that sort of passes the Intelligence Identities Protection Act, which was to prevent the likes of uh, Philip Agee revealing um, CIA covert operatives and their agents and contacts. Agee, interestingly, had 
only used public sources to do this. It wasn't um, sort of a black book that he had kept. A lot of these people were identified through public sources. Um, but there's been a lot of backlash towards this act. One of the most prominent uh, people speaking out against the Intelligence Identities Protection Act when it was passed uh, in the early 1980s was one Senator Joseph Biden, who, of course, is soon to be president, right? Uh, Biden spoke out against the, the negative uh, ramifications that would uh, affect journalists because journalists could also be prone to being prosecuted uh, for potentially outing not necessarily individuals, but operations. And again, the, the state would have the ability to sort of strike back against anybody who would reveal information, even inadvertently. And that applied to journalists as well as to former officials as well. Mm -hmm. Great. And um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think that, um, just to go back to something you said a, a couple of minutes ago, um, one of the threads running throughout this entire volume is just the yeah the jerry-rigged nature of how the state deals with whistleblowing um and a lot of the chapters sort of um, go through the consequences of all of these really improvised and contingent um uh laws executive orders and so on um and uh, that that's that's um, definitely something that i uh, i really enjoyed about the book um, and yeah, let's turn to Hannah's chapter, which covers um, another episode that people, you know, have some familiarity with, um, the uh, Iran-Contra affair, Contragate. Um, but Hannah, you approach this from the angle of whistleblowing, which is an angle that I um, had never considered. Um, but in your telling, um, the profile, profile of the whistleblower was different than, um, say, an Ellsberg or an Aji. Um, so, Hannah, can you just uh, um, really quickly tell listeners um, what Iran-Contra, uh, what the Iran-Contra affair was, um, and then maybe you can kind of go through um, uh, the, the the career of um, Jack Terrell was super fascinating. Maybe you could tell us about him. Um, yeah. Sure. Um, so, in a nutshell, the Iran-Contra affair was the biggest scandal that the Reagan administration faced in its tenure. Um, and it arose out of this complex arrangement um, in which the Reagan administration was on the one hand working covertly with Iran to exchange arms for hostages um, and uh, uh, illegally. And on the other hand, um, in Nicaragua, um, funneling that money to secretly back the Contras um, who were fighting the socialist Sandinista government there. Um, and so that was a complex web. It was a highly mediated scandal, um, you know, televised hearings in which the figure of Oliver North um, emerged as a hero because he said that uh, it was better for him to um, engage in these illegal activities if it was in service to the nation. Um, and so um, Oliver North is a very interesting, in his own right, interesting figure that kind of is a precursor to some of the alt-right militancy um, of our current era, but that's kind of an aside. As you said, I mean, I don't, I also did not know much about or really anything about the whistleblowing dimension of the Iran Contra affair before I began this project. Um, and I became interested in part because 
these figures, um, they were actually very different from the Daniel Ellsbergs um, that are more famous. Daniel Ellsberg was a very high level individual in the national security establishment who had the ear of people like Robert McNamara, the, the um, secretary of defense. In contrast, Jack Terrell, Stephen Carr, Peter Glibbery, these are the individuals um, that helped to disclose the Contra side of the Iran-Contra affair. They were right-wing mercenaries who were not even, at the time of their disclosure, um, members of the military, official military establishment. They were contractors. Um, and they were low-class drifters with criminal backgrounds. Um, and so these are not the kind of people that you usually associate with whistleblowing in the national security establishment. So that was one thing that really interested me. Um, and and um, just a little bit about, you, you said, you know, uh, Jack Terrell, to focus in on, on him in particular. And he was somebody who um, began his commitment to the Contras in a very positive light. He joined this paramilitary outfit to go and work on behalf of the Contras. And he was a very gung-ho Reagan supporter. But over time, he began to see that the Contra operation was rife with corruption And in addition, he saw that the Reagan administration was intent on covering that up and he was exposed to the propaganda machine um, that was sort of manipulating the public uh, view of the effort to aid the Contras. Um, And so he decided to disclose what he saw firsthand to the press and he would appear Um, famously on Meet the Press to talk about corruption um, within the Contras and to talk about the fact that there was um, secretly um, a a covert operation to aid the Contras. Um, And instead of being met with support, he was uh, met with opposition on all sides. Um, So unsurprisingly, Oliver North and the national security apparatus moved quickly to police and silence him um, and sent investigators after him, um, even wrote a letter to Reagan in which they fabricated this conspiracy that Terrell was trying to assassinate Reagan. Um, So a lot of, you know, really dirty um, surveillance and threatening tactics behind the scenes. But then also in the public sphere, um, Terrell was not received well, um, in, in large part because he had this, you know, very, very shady background. Um, so the Reagan, the, the, the kinds of organizations and media outlets that were supportive of Reagan, unsurprisingly, were not really quick to seize on, on Terrell's and others' revelations. But at the same time, the liberal establishment was holding Terrell at arm's length um, and really questioning his credibility. So in the chapter in the book, I'm really interested in the politics of credibility that arises and the ways in which the press, while we tend to think of them as um, kind of unceasing allies of whistleblowers, is also um, part of a social sphere. 
Um, and in that social sphere, there is a politics of credibility and partisan politics plays into it. Class plays into it. In this case, the whistleblowers were lower class and not really their image did not really fit with the, the figure of credibility that is normally required for a whistleblower to be legitimized. Um, and so in the, in the chapter of the book, I kind of trace this very labyrinthian information war that develops around Terrell and the other whistleblowers. Um, and that ends very tragically. I mean, Terrell kind of just disappears from the scene. He writes a memoir um, in which he, he catalogs everything that happened to him. But unlike Ellsberg, you know, he doesn't go on to have a public life as a whistleblower. Um, Stephen Carr, who was um, a collaborator with Terrell, he dies tragically, um, seemingly from a, a drug overdose. But then there are also various conspiracy theories that develop around whether the state had any role in his death. Um, and so I also trace the ways in which, ironically, it's really the far right um, and, and, and figures in the alt-right media that are the few who take an interest in the fates and trajectories of Terrell and Carr and others, um, and how um, that, would, that exposes the limits of um, whistleblowing um, as a paradigm because it doesn't really allow for figures like Terrell to really participate or be recognized in that phenomenon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated how you sh- like kind of like walked the readers through the consequences of all this um, in like a very uh, you know immediate way for uh, these people who tried to blow the whistle. Um, or did build a whistle rather on the uh, Iran Contra affair, um, but then yet yeah, didn't receive recognition. Were met with disbelief and so on. Um, and so, like out of that, uh, yeah, the, these people's lives fell apart. Um, you know, journalists were also being suspended if they believed these um, uh, whistleblowers early on. Uh, I, th- I think someone resigned. Like, like you, you start to see that, um, yeah, the the these like really immediate consequences for uh, this structure of credibility vetting. So just to move on to um, some of these concluding questions that um, uh, um, I was uh, sort of left with by the, by the end of your book. So firstly, something that I was really struck by was how uh, national security whistleblowing is a very distinct phenomenon and it gets treated differently by the state. Um, You know, there are, certain laws um, uh, or practices that are put in place that enable whistleblowing to happen um, more regularly in other spheres, you know, like social policy or economic policy, health policy, um, um, uh, and, and, and as well in the corporate world. Um, but with national security whistleblowing is different. Can you help explain why this has been um, isolated from these other um, domains? Right. So national security whistleblowing has always been sort of exceptionalized from the very beginning. So Hannah mentioned Ralph Nader is a key figure in terms of popularizing whistleblowing, talking about it in the 1970s. 
Nader's concept uh, of the public interest over the organizational interest and sort of encouraging whistleblowing was very much geared around uh, his background in corporate um, affairs, corporate responsibility, and he wanted to bring that to, all, to government. But there was always a uncomfortable sort of silence when it came to national security matters. When we talk about national security, it's not just classified information per se. It's everybody who's within the national security state. Um, so even when you have the first protection mechanisms which emerge in the late 1980s, national security is always excluded from that. So... In the context of the post-Nixonian era, set the, the presidential candidate at the time, and Jimmy Carter, runs as a champion of whistleblowers. You have a movement in Congress to encourage uh, whistleblowing or to protect whistleblowing, particularly uh, in relation to waste, fraud, and abuse. And this is the official state definition, quite narrowly defined. It, they set up uh, channels to protect whistleblowers, to allow um, sort of disclosures that uh, eradicate waste, call out fraud, call out abuse. But national security whistleblowing was always excluded from that. Okay, It continued to define it as an unauthorized disclosure. Right, It's a question of security, which is rooted in that black and white world of spying loyalty. And this is why the Espionage Act is so crucial, right? Because it speaks to those questions and issues of spying and loyalty. You have the other measures that develop over time, as, as my chapter goes, in, goes into, but it's really under Obama that this idea of a intelligence community or national security whistleblower emerges, but again, very narrowly defined. These are internal reporting channels, uh, as Hannah knows uh, in her own work around the State Department's uh, dissent channels. The, 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 the objective is to keep the disclosure in-house. Right? There's no public interest revelation, right? very narrowly defined. So this goes back to the, 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 the contested nature of whistleblowing in a way, and the two very different visions of whistleblowing. So on the one hand, you've got the organizational defender, this is someone who goes through those internal channels, a disclosure to correct a wrong, improve an organization. This is recognized by the state because it remains in-house. The other one, and these are the more famous cases, is the whistleblower as a public defender, where they go outside of the organization, usually through the press, where the disclosure is in the public interest. There may be a reform element, but really it's about responsibility to society not the organization, it is not the state. This kind of whistleblowing, this is where your Ellsbergs come in, your Snowdens, your, your Mannings, your Winners, they are not recognized by the state, yet they are the most famous cases. They're the ones that, you know, you, you show up a picture to somebody on the street, they, they're going to know who Edward Snowden is. They will, they, the chances are that he'll be identified as a whistleblower, but the, 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 the US state will not recognize him, does not label them as a whistleblower because they that would confer certain protections. They are instead an unauthorized disclosure. So this is where you have this schism in a way on why the term and the concept remains so contested even to the present. Yeah, and I would just add as a kind of addendum, the there is a tendency that uh, critics of 
the public defender whistleblowers will chastise them and say, well, whistleblowing belongs on the inside and you should use the mechanisms that have been set up for whistleblowers. Um, But that is almost always a red herring and it really obscures the fact that A, there are very limited mechanisms um, and B, historically, when whistleblowers have used them, they have also been retaliated against. So one important case um, from our current times or most recently um, would be that of Tom Drake, who before Ed Snowden made his revelations um, was also blowing the whistle inside on the NSA and was retaliated against. Um, And Snowden has pointed out that he was kind of tracking Drake's case and seeing what happened to Drake in his decision not to go on with these internal channels. Um, So I think it's important for people to be aware that um, the, the internal channels um, are not, A, are not historically effective, but B, are, are not historically safe. Um, it's not uh, a way to necessarily um, maintain one's career and good standing in the national security establishment. Mm-hmm. And just as we are um, uh, really getting to the end of our time here, I have one more question, which is, the the conclusion of the book, uh, and especially in your uh, jointly written um, chapters in introduction and conclusion, is that the U.S. government's long-running war, or the, the way the U.S. government treats whistleblowers is a problem. Uh, and uh, the book, you know, it, it kind of sidesteps debates about whether people are heroes or, um, uh, or, or traitors. Um, it, it's not moralizing, it's historicizing. Um, but it's clear that the the way national security whistleblowers have been treated um, uh, or the way national security whistleblowing is governed um, is is not working or has not worked. Um, And so I wanted to ask you, after doing this project, after spending years thinking about this history, how should the history of whistleblowing inform policies? So it's a great question. I mean, I think one of the conclusions we came to examining this is that it's not just about the history of whistleblowing on the or it's not just a story of whistleblowers in individual cases because the impact of whistleblowing reverberates much more widely it has a ripple effect across different institutions different groups so while the state develops tools to retaliate against whistleblowers they also develop tools that can be used against Others. So, for example, you have the US government tracking Daniel Ellsberg, but they are also looking into his lawyer, Leonard Bedeen, and there's a chapter in the book that goes into that. Right? This surveillance not only of the state employee, but, every, but those who he uh, engages with, those who are supporting him. Of course, they, the, the, the plumbers break into, Nick's, into Ellsberg's psychologist's office. That's what is the first card to fall, which eventually leads to Watergate. In more recent times, the tools against whistleblowers to prosecute whistleblowers have also been used against journalists. People, and we're talking about prominent journalists here, people at the New York Times, uh, Jim Risen, Judy Miller, who both gone on to very different careers in the present. Uh, One's at Fox News, the other one's at The Intercept. But at the time, they're at The New York Times, and there's another chapter that talks about 
the, 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 their struggles and how the state has also attacked them. So while censorship or pre, prior restraint begins with these individuals, it, it, it spreads quite quickly. Um, very recently in the Trump era, you have a number of books that come out, um, one by John Bolton, for example, uh, he's accused of releasing secrets. There are uh, accusations that he could be tried under the Espionage Act or he would have to give up his royalties, which is, again, rooted in a prominent case in the 1970s. So you've got this remarkable cast of characters who have very little in common politically, ideologically, from an Ellsberg to a, to a Frank Snepp, to a John Bolton, to a Julian Assange, for example. Uh, and yet they're all caught up in this web that spun by whistleblowing or the phenomenon of whistleblowing and the state's response to that. Yeah, I would just add, I mean, a a way of summing that up, uh, one of the conclusions of our book is that the fates of whistleblowers and democracy are linked. So even, or especially if you're not terribly interested in whistleblowing, the ramifications of whistleblowing affect the very fundamental questions about the freedom of information, the right to know civil liberties, um, and the status of the national security state in our everyday lives. So um, whistleblowing is very central in ways that are both direct and indirect. In addition, I would just add that um, hit a kind of plug for the work that history does and historicizing a phenomenon like whistleblowing can do to think about um, change. Uh, I mean, historians think about the past, right? Um, But in researching this history, we saw how many of the structures and ideas that seem self-evident today were constructed and constructed pretty much in the last hundred years. Um, And as we've been saying, a lot of that Uh, creation was improvisational and ad hoc. So there's nothing eternal about the the paradigm of whistleblowing or the paradigm of how the state and the public responds to it. Um, And I guess the silver lining in that is that it means that change is possible. Um, The national security state is a behemoth and it's very powerful, um, but it is constructed um, by people by society and it can be reformed it's not impossible it's uh uh, very difficult but not impossible um whistleblowing is one of those kind of very thorny topics around which many groups say that they're interested in reform um but historically very little has been done to make change um but it doesn't mean that that's not possible Mm -hmm. Well, I think that is a perfect way to end our discussion. So, Kate and Hannah, I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much, Dexter. Thanks so much, Dexter. It was a pleasure to be with you. I've been speaking with Kate and Mystery and Hannah German about their book, Whistleblowing Nation, The History of National Security Disclosures and the Cult of State Secrecy. And you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network.